but it, it's also lots of long-term changes in the muscle um, in terms of fiber, uh, fast twitch and slow twitch fiber. Number of mitochondria? Number of mitochondria and capillarization. So how well fed the muscles are with blood. That's why rowers who are mostly white men can't jump because we are literally dis destroying uh, the explosive potential of our legs. Uh, well, yeah, it's true. It's uh, and also, you know, we we don't live in America, so we don't need to play in the NBA to to get our way out of out of poverty. In your case, the the poverty of living in London with nice parents, and in my case, the poverty of growing up in Northumbria with nice parents. It was hell, I tell you, hell. <laughs> that Roman Catholic school, heavy metal worshiping priests. They talk about South Central and gang shootings and all the rest of it, but until you've had to sing "Morning Is Broken" in, in Morning Assembly. You've, you've, you've never known fear. I, I, I rate Morning Is Broken. It's a banger. So speaking, speaking of someone who actually has to put up with school with actual school hymns, I don't know <laughs> if they do that in schools anymore, and when they actually go through the full hymn book and some of the toneless dirges... Oh, there's some bad ones. There's some bad, just bad. bad, 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 bad. I mean, Morning Is Broken has a tune... You know, it's it's definitely up there. All things bright and beautiful can can yes. along. Onward, Christian soldiers. Onward, Christian soldiers. Jerusalem. It's it, a classic. I, you know, in the canon, there are a lot of bangers, but I just don't think there are enough. Are you saying what you need to do for your teaching job is to put together a Spotify playlist for chapel? No, seriously. If I did, if I did that, the the head of music would fuck me up. <laughs> there's no two ways <laughs> okay there are certain lines you don't cross and it's like the closest you can ever get to a suggestion about what he played was like oh oh Phil that that was a really nice hymn I really like that yeah can we have that and, one again I'd, I'd love to hear that again you know so, sometime this year nice one yeah um, you go you even just make it's like Interesting, interesting, uh, interesting choice there. That one, <laughs> a lot of, uh, lot of uh, rising and falling, um, a lot, lot of very technical singing going on there. If you, if you if you put in something that's as close to being a criticism as that, you would you are just persona non grata. You suddenly find like you've got a you've got a class where four people are missing because they've all mysteriously got their singing lessons at the same time. I was going to ask how he manages to fuck you up. Does he, Does he like, selected members of the choir will knock on your door and then as you open it, they'll sing Descant Harmony at you until your ears explode. But yeah, he, basically. <laughs> he basically just poaches your pupils. I mean, that's, that's the equivalent when you think about it. It's like going to see your favourite band in concert and they play none of the hits and all of the, B, the obscure B-sides that only spods know. It's like if you imagine going to see God in concert and you think, great, it's going to be morning is broken, all things bright and beautiful. He's going to do the Christmas section, Heart Herald Angels. It's a banger. And then he does, you know, in Acheron did Pharaoh dwell and all of that stuff that you just, oh, and you think, God, I paid £25 for this. Okay, these are hymns. You should be able to sing along to them really easily. You know, you're there and you're mumbling along into the hymn book and it's just like, I haven't heard a hook yet. God's not good on choruses. 
and and unfortunately a lot of in the 60s when they changed the 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 canon from especially in catholic schools from latin to the vernacular there was a massive rewriting of 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 the hymns to include like negro spirituals and all of the rest of it so you you did actually get some stuff that in a very stiff white way would occasionally swing and have a hook but a lot of the old school anglican stuff would swing and have a what swing and have a hook yeah ah don't do this to me, man. Don't do this. I've got long vowel sounds. You know you know what part of the world I'm from. I got this for eight years. What did you say? I'm going to go and get a book. A what? A book? You mean a book? No, I'm not going to get a male rabbit. I'm going to get something to read. I could read a male rabbit, but I don't think he's going to like it. Hook, book, Luke, cook. What is wrong with that pronunciation? Right, how would you say, Haley, darling, I'm going to cook you something wonderful tonight? Hayley, darling, I'm going to cook you something wonderful tonight. Cook? I'm going to cook you. <laughs> really? You context- make it sound just so disgusting. Uh, well, it's just, in the, you know, okay. It's just I have long vowel sounds. I'm glad you find that you, we should just be putting this out. This is the good stuff. I have long vowel sounds. That's it. I'm proud of where I come from. Middle class Roland's Gill. It was hard. I might say something about have we reached peak pod as a talking point, because everyone and their dog seems to have a podcast at, at, at the moment. Yeah, and and should, should we just talk about your vowel sounds <laughs> and the kind of songs we had to sing at school? <laughs> I really liked it. Have you, have you ever noticed that God has no choruses? It, well, certainly not God in the Church of England. <laughs> no. Well, even in the Catholic Church, I mean, there are, as you say, there are some bangers, but you go to a Bon Jovi concert, and I have been to a Bon Jovi concert. Uh, you know, I, I have Megadeth and Metallica and all sorts of avant-garde, other weird bands on my conscience. I have to say, you know where you are when he's singing Living on a Prayer. You're in a stadium with 25,000 other people also singing Living on a Prayer. All know the words. They, they all know the words. And strictly speaking, about one third of the way into that song, a tribesman from the South American jungle, who not only had never heard of Bon Jovi, but had never actually heard recorded music before, would probably know the words to the rest of the song and would be singing along. I think by the by the th- a third of the way through, your average Amazonian tribesman who'd never heard Western music before and had no concept of communal singing would be belting out the chorus the next time it came round. I think so. I'm, I'm going I'm to have to say this. Metallica, I think, are pretty awesome. Okay, mm-hmm. Megadeth. This is this is this is one of the things we got a new car car a while ago, and it's got digital radio in it, so you get niche station. Planet Rock and Planet Rock have introduced me to so many bands that I'd never heard, I dismissed, and I just thought they're terrible. Okay, Kiss. I want to rock and roll all night and party every day. Oh yeah, Kiss did not sell a hundred million act. Albums by accident. I think I may have said this to you before, but you hear a Kiss song, bit like proto Bon Jovi, with a lot more smart and a lot less sentimentality, but fundamentally, absolutely solid rock song, banging chorus every time that you can sing along to, even if you wouldn't necessarily want to do it in front of your mother. They didn't sell 100 million albums by accident. On the other hand, Area 51 by Megadeth mm-hmm. is contrived teenage shite. It's poor. I think, I think I have genuinely 
listened to several Megadeth albums and been very, very puzzled by all of them. And, you know, possibly came to the opinion that they were absolutely right to fire him. Yes. There is the odd tune, like uh, In My Darkest Hour, which is a which is a belting song, but the rest of it is kind of, it's metal played by people who like jazz and there are no hooks. And with all due respect, you can whittle on as much as you want. You can have crushing guitars, you can have pounding drums, but heavy metal and rock and roll is based on having hooks so big you could land sperm whales with them. When you start stepping away from the chorus, that can get 25,000 people in the stadium, including girls. This is important. The girls have to be invited to the party, singing along. When you step away from that, you are rapidly stepping down a dark, lonely, and frankly celibate pathway. Shall we talk about Sally Kettle now? Ladies and gentlemen, dear friends and listeners, welcome back to the Broken Oars podcast. And this is a fairly special occasion because this is our first sequel episode. This is part two of two of the frankly wonderful Miss Sally Kettle, Aaron. That is my name. My God, he remembered my name. It's usually you, Lackey, you northern person with strange vowel sounds. Come hither, come hither and tie my shoes. I wear slippers these days when I'm recording. This is a, a rare occasion for us. We've never actually attempted a, what they call in the trade, I believe, a double hand. But when we came to edit Sally's chat with us, we actually found that we couldn't take anything out. I think it was a, a fantastic, wonderful and empowering chat. And she's the lady I'd like to be when I grow up. It's as simple as that. There we go. And I think we are going to let her speak for herself because she'll do a vastly better job than we will. Yeah, I think we've proved that over the course of many episodes. True. Ladies and gentlemen, Sally Kettle. Dive in there. and Who does this because he knows otherwise, because I'm from the northeast and and we're all a race of gobshites up there, that I will just ask the next question. So he he kind of, you can see when he wants to get in because he starts to do that. So I'm kind of like fascinated by the kind of wildlife aspect. I mean, I I know it's kind of like moving completely away from the emotional side and the... Yeah, yeah. uh, But it's like, you've talked about sort of like just whales as though they were just popping up all the time and your boat got attacked by a shark I mean, just just tell me a little bit more about this because like yeah I... backtrack to the shark bit backtrack <laughs> so on the on the first one we had a lot of whale experiences and we had pygmy sperm whales we had pilot whales it was really amazing and they came up really close to the boat and it was and and it was because we were going so bloody slowly <laughs> and also we took the time to see them I was constantly whale spotting. You know, you kind of got a sense of the sea when there were, you were more likely to spot them. Um, okay. I, I became very good at whale spotting. And um, on the second one, we didn't see as many whales because the weather was so bad. Um, and we had lost our rudder. So it had been sheared off by a big wave and completely kind of taken off the back of the boat. Um, and so we had to jerry rig a rudder out of a, a, a rope with T-shirts and uh, a water bottle on the back of it and um, one afternoon the shark came up and decided to eat the whole system off the back of the boat <laughs> that was a fun that was a fun half hour um, and so we lost the whole system which was um, pretty scary if, you, if you'd seen how it was put together you'd think how the hell did it do that 
um we've never rode so fast in our entire lives but yeah so that was that was an interesting experience do you, do you know what sort of shark it was um or... no and I, um <laughs> i didn't go out to recognize its dorsal fin okay. <laughs> you didn't yeah, pop no. your head under the water right? uh, you know just let it pop out and have a look um I, I think i did speak to somebody about um shark behavior it wouldn't have been a great white um oh, I can't remember now what he'd said. It was very specific. But, you know, if you've got um, T-shirts that we'd worn, so there's pheromones that are swish-washing right, the water, yeah, yeah. then it's got the shirts as well. So, you know, and, and so a shark is obviously going to see that as a, as a shoal of fish and get caught and probably got caught up in the rope. So, um, and you know, they're strong buggers. Uh, yeah, so that was, that was, that was exciting. I, I have actually seen your TED talk where you where you you, you painstakingly sketched the shark. It's a very accurate representation of, of um, Did you get the music as the shark came up? Did you actually know it was coming because you heard? Duh, 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 duh. I didn't, no? but it's funny. No, whenever I tell the story, I say, and this, you know, this is a lesson for you all to learn, usually to young people. When you're a skipper, nominate somebody else to go out and sort it out. So that's what you do. You nominate somebody else to go out. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. The perils of captaincy. Yeah, it's a lonely. It's, it's lonely at the top. Yeah. <laughs> Especially yeah. when you shove your crewmates out to face the sharks. Yes, it's a hard. It's a hard job. It's it's difficult for me sending you out to face that shark alone. But I, I have the moral fortitude to do it. Yes. Yeah. Off you go. Yeah, absolutely. But actually, funny enough, talking about that, you know, it is extremely hard being the leader in those sort of situations. It's really, really, I found it really, really tough. And, and funny enough, going back to the emotional stuff, which I'll, I'll cover off really quickly, is that um, when one of the girls got off, it's one of the most important things I talk about with young people. And that is I ask them, you know, has anybody ever whinged? Have you ever failed? And, and to be OK with failing. It's OK to fail. And, mm. and, and, and I can only truly say that I was okay with failing because I failed the first time. And when my friend, who's a really good friend of mine now, got off the boat and disqualified from the race, um, I think I was the only one in the crew that was not happy about it, but okay with it um, because she just couldn't do it. She couldn't do it at the time. She just couldn't do it. And, 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 and you just have to accept that that's, that's how it was for her at that point and that we will all be in that situation mm. to a greater or lesser extent and we have to forgive ourselves and and forgive others because she was she was injured and and she had to leave but then she she went back and crossed it and got the record yeah, didn't she, she? Did. yeah she did she did she got the record and i'm so proud of her for that i mean we were never going to get the record it, it took me ages to get over it <laughs> don't don't get me wrong i, I i'm not made of wood <laughs> i was like <laughs> Yeah, that's shit. But um, you know, you've, it's kind of yeah. It's, um, I'm, I'm so I'm, I'm exceptionally proud of her achievement. Can I just ask before Lewin dives in again? I don't know about on Lewin's side on in Lewin's family, but it's, in, in my family, I have relatives who who work with the sea and, and in the sea. My dad was a, a deep sea diver back in the the bad old days of the seventies and eighties when it was it was quite a, a, a dangerous job. And when we were growing up, he would kind of tell us stories about things that had happened at, at work, about, you know, killer whales and sharks he'd seen and blowouts in bells and stuff. And it always seemed quite kind of jolly and adventurous because when you're little, it's your dad and he's big and he's here and nothing's ever going to hurt your dad sort of thing. And then as we got a bit older, 
a bit more, we got a bit more wise about the dangers of what he was doing. We would talk a bit more deeply about it. And he said when he went out to the oil fields for the first time, which is back when they were putting the infrastructure in to get the North Sea oil out to, to get it to Britain and Norway, it was very like the Wild West. And, and he said there came a point on his first trip where he, he realized he could do everything right his equipment could be perfect. His team around him could be perfect. Could have, he could have plotted his dive. He could have planned the work schedule and he could still go in the water and die because yeah. the sea is totally impersonal. It doesn't care about you. It doesn't care about your wife at home and your, or your children. You could, you could do everything right and be in the wrong place at the wrong time and not come back. And he yeah. said it was incredibly sobering. Yeah. Did, you, did you have a point where you, where you had a similar realization where you kind of went, oh, this was an adventure, but it's actually, it's really real. I had that on the clip around the world. So I, I'm in one of the expeditions I went on after the Rose. I, um, I did the last leg of a clipper um, sailing trip and mm. um, managed to dislocate a toe in, in New York Harbour, in the harbour in New York, and ended up spending five hours in ER in absolute agony, <laughs> waiting for it to be to reset. Thought, oh, that's okay, you know, I've had my accident. And then I um, got myself wrapped around the primary winch on a 68-foot racing yacht and almost lost my hand. And that was just off the back end of the Isle of Wight. And that was um, emotionally traumatising. Um, one, because I snapped my thumb like this. It was kind of dangling. It was like, and also I'd almost gone overboard, the shock of it. Um, and then post-shock, the realisation of your impotency on the boat and how you suddenly become a spare part for everybody else and you're not emotionally and mentally in the right space. So that when we were kind of, we got into a bit of a flattish calm going past Dover, um, I said to the, I said to the skipper, just, if it's close enough, I'll, I'll swim it. And I seriously meant that. I'll just get off the boat and I'll swim there. Just okay. get off now, please. Thank you very much. That was truly awful. And the flashbacks after that were quite significant, actually. It took me a while to get, get over it, to know how quickly something could go very, very wrong. Um, and to be part of a, a team who actually were quite emotionally incapable of kind of looking after me I, you know it was it was very weird everybody sort of took a massive step back you know it's almost as if you know when somebody get, has cancer and you can't you need you don't can't don't think you can say the right thing so you don't say anything and that's how it kind of felt like you know I just nobody spoke to me I was ostracized so you, you were suddenly on the outside when you'd been on the inside and what you actually needed was someone to go, it's going to be okay, We'd, yeah. you know, and engage with you. Yeah, it was really odd. And, and I think that's potentially the downside of, of a competitive team, um, especially ones, you know, that, the, the team that taught me the most and was the, the, the most, one of the most wonderful experiences I've ever had was um, a group of women from the armed forces, from each of the armed forces, and they were incredible women. First um, female um, uh, fighter pilot, um, the first um, female beef eater. You know, these are incredible women. 
um, and they and and I think this was potentially where the you know the the armed forces can get things quite right. When we we went across the Chemin de Liberté, which is the Pyrenees um, escape route across the Pyrenees, um, it's called the um, the Freedom Trail, and um, I'd gone through this experience, you know, two experiences, one with with Joe and her getting off, and another with the Clipper, and and quite a few kind of team working experiences that were just not great. Um, and I went across with them, with them and, and I was, I'm very frightened of, of heights and they, they were so nurturing and so careful with us, you know, it, with each other, we were so supportive and it was a really beautiful feeling, a really beautiful feeling. And it's one thing actually my mum did, did teach me on the row, the very first row, and that's the value of kindness. And, um, and I often think that teens forget that. They forget to be kind because that because the goal is so important and, um, and 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 if anything comes from this you know I hope that if I can translate anything from what I've said is that you know, kindness is key and you can still be competitive but kindness saves lives emotionally and physically it's it's a really important point and it, it, it's something that's that's actually um, kind of like elite British rowing has sort of suffered from re recently um in the press like a couple of guys james Fogg and alex partridge both found their their rowing careers cut short at sort of you know in, in really quite you know unexpected ways and it's like both injured out and and so they were suddenly one day they were rowers the next they could not do that anymore they had to go and they thought oh it's okay I, I, I still live just like, you know, 40 minutes away and I know everybody's phone number and they said the hardest thing to deal with was that nobody called them. Yeah. And <laughs> also there was, I think, I think it was Alex Partridge. He said he almost understood why not because there was too much else going on. He, he knew he wouldn't have called him in his own situation because there was too much else going on to deal with. And if it wasn't directly relevant to like winning an Olympic gold medal, yeah, it wasn't relevant. It, it was just something. It so faster, you know, there's the, the, you know, tiny little incremental gains and, you know, incremental gains is not being kind to your teammates. <laughs> and actually, yeah, Go fuck yourself on the incremental games if it means that somebody ends up coming out of this emotionally traumatized. Yeah. <laughs> Frankly, life's too short. And, and and actually, you know, this is something that a lot of people have experienced in the row that they, they the ocean rows is that they go with, they go so competitive, they want the world record, you know, they'll do anything to get it. And they come back traumatized, you know that they one didn't achieve what they wanted and two they were really horrible to each other on the boat you know <laughs> it's like for what for what you know it, it is I, I don't know i don't know but, but that sounds like the antithesis of what you went through it sounds like you surrendered to the experience and what it had to teach you whereas they they are still going right i can i can dominate this experience and bend it to my will and they haven't quite twigged actually you are a tiny speck on 3,000 miles of ocean. You have no control other than moving the oars back and forward when you can. 
but I, I but I, I I didn't know that at the time. That only comes from retrospection. You know, that only comes from looking back and going, mm, I'm not sure I did that right. You know, so I'm not painting myself in any light here that I went kind of as this, ah, you know, this Zen-like, you know, ocean rowing goddess who went out and was like, I'm one with the ocean. I'm one. <laughs> I learned the hard way, as we all do. It's just that I've had an, an, an amazing opportunity to learn the lessons because I speak about it. And from, from speaking about it, people have asked me questions, which means I've reflected on it and gone, yeah, why did I do that? <laughs> you know, and, and that's important. You've got to look back at what you did to kind of learn the lessons for, for the future and I still you know we all still make massive mistakes yeah almost like the, the best way to learn something is to teach it to, to someone yeah. else yeah did you 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 crossed the ocean you then went and did it again and then you became a professional adventurous which sounds like something from an 1890s Kipling novel but also just what I want to grow up to be Firstly, did you find what you were looking for in the adventures? Because I get the sense of, of a hankering for something or, or, or a need for something else in your life. And then when it stopped, was there a period where you came back to what we laughingly call real life, but you kind of, you had to find your step again or you had to decompress and come back down to earth? Post-deployment blues. And, um, and, and that is uh, extremely difficult um, to, to deal with. And, you know, it, it, it is, it, I, I went on the road because I wanted to change my life. I didn't want it to be part of my life. I wanted it to be life changing. And it did, it did change my life. And, you know, I had, looking back now, some, you know, some really great successes. I managed to write a book. I managed to get it published. What I really wanted was to be a Blue Peter presenter. <laughs> That's what I really wanted. And I sort of thought, you know, that in lots of ways, this would be the excellent opportunity opportunity because now as an ocean rower and of course you know I spent 10 years banging on the doors of, of production companies and um, you know it's all talk about yeah we really want a female adventure on the telly no we fucking don't because there still isn't one right have you seen the equivalent of Bear Grylls even no. now right I've had to drop that ambition because it's not me anymore right I don't want to go out and do Sunny Kettle's bungee jumping nightmare from hell you know sleeping in the guts of a camel that's not it isn't what I want it was what I wanted but not I'd watch it but if it's not what you yeah, want exactly. well, that's fine. Well, you know what it's at the time I said you know this this was a, quite a few years ago now it's a sort of change but the rhetoric from from a discovery producer uh, content producer was women don't watch women and men don't watch women Oh, well, that was to the point. <laughs> wow, no, wow, yeah. So, you know, uh, so, so that's, there hasn't, you know, name one adventurer, you know, proper mm. adventurer who holds her own on, 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 a t on a television, you know, da-da-da-da, doing this. There isn't one. Yeah. So Crackle and Fogel got the documentary out of it because he was James Crackle and he was Ben Fogel and then the everything else, like the Marathon de Sable that he then went to do. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, uh, there's, there's one name and of course I've completely forgotten. Are you going to be horrible about James Cracknell again? Are, are you going to get his lawyers involved like he did last no, time? No, no, but there was a Blue Peter presenter. Oh, Helen Skelton. Yeah, Helen Skelton. But again, you know, her career hasn't developed into, you know, an adventurous career. She's she's done some adventurous things, but she she, she cycled to the South Pole. She did extraordinary things. Yeah, don't get me wrong. No, I'm not saying that there haven't been women who've had a single yeah, but that's been relevant, right? But 
you know, where is where is our Bear, Bear Grylls? Where is our Ramirez? Where are our Ben Where's our Michael Palin? Where is our, you know, I could fucking name a hundred men yeah. who've had seasons, series of, of, of recommissioned adventures around the world, traveling, da da da. Rangesh Rankanaven, or whatever his name is, you know, he's like, what the fuck? You know, even now they're doing bloody comics. And, you know, where are the women? Where are the women doing these things? You know, what, it, it, there just isn't, it's still, there's still nobody. And, you know, I've kind of had, to, I've, I've let the dream go. <laughs> can, can, you just, can you just not mention that to my daughter? Because she has, she's already made audition tapes to be. No, no, yeah, yeah, no, I let my dream go, not that, yeah. that. Yeah, I'm amazed at how many women now in, in comparison to what you know I, I had very few women that I could contact who'd ever done anything adventurous when I was doing it now you know there's the adventure queens on Facebook there's got there's thousands of women who are going out and doing things and and, um, and uh, you know there's there's a huge commute, massive massive community of adventurous women and one of these days we'll see an adventurous it'll woman. break through yeah i'll never murder her for getting there before me <laughs> i'm getting I, too old right now <laughs> well i mean palin was in his 40s when he first did round the world and i know he had the career with monty python and all of the other stuff that that that, that he'd done but it just seems we do have a plethora of of men who go i'm going yeah. into the amazon <laughs> to this tribe uh, you never have the the you never have the balancing. Yeah. yeah. You never have the yeah. counterpoint. Yeah. If, if anyone from the BBC does watch this, and we've recently found out that British Rowing does listen to us, largely to check that we're not being libelous about anyone involved in um, competitive rowing. But if anyone... People who used to be involved in competitive rowing, we can just get away with murder. They don't care anymore. If anyone from the BBC is listening to this, get on it. Pull your fingers out. You've had plenty of time. Yeah, you have had plenty of time. Yeah. What was right? Can you find out that that Bear Grylls um, chief um, expedition leader is a woman? Um, and he 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 occasionally stays in hotels when he's pretending to be inside the guts of a camel, um, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> how how was writing the book? Did, was that was that a conscious? I've, I've done the adventure now I'll tell the story or did did it need to be told did you take a particular angle did you sit down and go I'll write 500 words a day till it's done or did it just all kind of come out in a flood um I so I'm I, I would call myself a creative above everything else and I just thought this is you know from even the standing back position this is a really good story mm. I, I, you know what we haven't mentioned is I haven't really spoken to my mum for nearly 10 years before I rode with her so, you know, okay. there was a lot of water under the bridge there, you know, and there was a lot going on for us. You know, I told her six months before we left in the car so she wouldn't hit me. She was not happy that I was going. Um, you know, it took a long time to repair that relationship. And I, uh, I had anxiety and most of the kind of, the, the kind of all that, eating disorder stuff was based on the relationship with my mum really you know it's all kind of all interconnected um and so you know I thought that it would be cathartic for me to write it and I thought it would be actually a really good story from a kind of a stand back and look at it sort of point of view and I, and I, I completely lost my confidence with it I thought no bugger's gonna read it and and then um that, do you remember MySpace do you remember MySpace back I do in remember the day? MySpace yes. yeah yeah I had a friend called Joe 
the toad and he was also writing a book and he was based in Newcastle and I'd never met him and his name's Michael and I you know we kind of became you know how you getting on with the book buddies and he said oh come up and stay with me come up and stay with me in the A69 and I went all right then <laughs> never met him in my life pitched up at his house uh he's like a, he was a young santa claus and he was such a nice man and and he gave me his spare bedroom he cooked me dinner and and we sat on the sofa together and wrote our books and then he introduced me to his um publisher and i got it published um but um and then the publisher went bust as soon as it hit the shelves in waterstones and he buggered off to australia <laughs> <laughs> so there we are but it, it did mean it did mean that I got all the copies of the book and um so I've probably made more from my book than any other yeah and 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 if anybody ever decides that they're going to vote um to write a book about an experience you need to do it straight away and this is one thing that I definitely learned from that experience is that if you want the authentic voice do it while you remember it because now my experience of it is so different from what it was and the person who wrote it then is very different to the person that is yeah I... speaking to you now and actually i'm sort of slightly embarrassed by the person who wrote it but she was that person then and you know i've changed a lot yeah i, I completely that. agree with that i i wrote up the the thames trip immediately after it happened since we started the podcast in lockdown i picked it up again and i don't actually recognize the person who wrote it because completely different <laughs> and i realized that if i start to pick at it and rewrite it now you, you remember things in a fresh way when they've just happened and now you've had all of this time to reflect on it and you've, you've worked out the lessons through, through talking about what you've done, you'd write a completely different book. Yeah, and also I was really angry then, you know, and that, and that is expressed on the pages and that, and that anger was authentic and, you know, that excitement was authentic and, that, and all of that is mellowed, you know, and I'd mm. probably write it with a completely different lens so I, I wouldn't trust anybody who writes their autobiographies in, in later life because it's never going to be actually how it was at the time. Yeah, so, the book was really exciting and I haven't read it through. I haven't read it through since I wrote it and that's okay. 13 years ago. Yeah. Uh, I'm always sort of slightly scared <laughs> to go back to it. It's like I've done that now and that was really exciting and, and I'm really proud of it. Um, what's really funny is that my book, the cover I designed myself and it's got me standing in a bikini holding an oar from the air, right? Yeah, exactly, right. Because I wanted to be like, shh, the, the Liberté leading the French troops, you know, with men yeah. in my wake. Okay, because at the time, all the book covers were like stern men in stormy waves, right? And I didn't want that. I didn't want that. I wanted to be like, this is a woman. This is a woman out there leading the way. Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And guess what? Recently, um, some girls were reading it, on, you know, in a Facebook group, and they said, we don't like the cover. It looks like it's been designed by a man. It was like, you know, so I did it for all the feminist reasons then. And now it's kind of completely reversed. And they want the hard, stern, manly looking books because, <laughs> because it doesn't feel like it's been, you know, you're being kind of fawned over. So it's really weird. It's really weird how kind of, it's being, you know, these things have changed. Perspective change. No, I, 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 I have done some research and I, I have got the book and I have got the cover. And I remembered, I remember, yes, now you've said it, I can't not see 
it's that striding forward in, into revolution yeah. stance. Yeah. Yeah, and also I'm you know I'm 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 silly, and I wanted it to look silly and be reflective of my personality. I'm not stern, and I've written it in a comic way. You know, mm. I'm, I'm, it's, it's 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 hopefully a funny book. So, Sally's not at sea. Yeah, 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 exactly. Do you see what I did there? I, so I, you know, I, I, just, I didn't want it to be kind of stern, stern. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, well, I, I don't know. I mean, there's not a lot I can add to that. I mean, sort of, one of the things that, you know, obviously I know you from because you've worked with my wife on it is the Active Pregnancy Foundation. Yeah. And, I mean, how is it that you went from rowing across oceans, racing flippers across the Atlantic, um, escaping from France, which, let's face it, everybody's tried to do at one point in their life, <laughs> to starting your own charity mm. about trying to get expectant mothers to be a bit more active and exercise more um it sounds like it doesn't none of it fits but all of it fits together and and that's why it's sort of working out so i um i did qualify as a personal trainer uh, I was going through a kind of another existential crisis. Like, oh, I can't be an adventure all my life. I'm, I'm not getting this TV gig. I'm going to have to do something else. So I qualified and I ended up working at the Olympic Games. It was an amazing experience. And I uh, ended up in the gym for the two weeks leading up to the open opening of the Olympic Games, working with the athletes there. And it was extraordinary. And, the, and one of the reasons why I, I qualified was one, because I I've always enjoyed supporting and helping other people. And I do, I've done a lot of charity work and all the stuff that I've, all the adventures I've done, I've raised money for charity. Um, and I, I like working with people too. And, 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 you know, anybody who's a personal trainer can well probably know that it's more psychological than physical. Um, and, um, yeah, so I, and, and also to kind of, to keep myself active, you know, I was saying at the beginning, I, I really wanted to keep, active and and from and it's i've realized over the years that it was probably more for my mental health than my physical health um and then discovered that i couldn't conceive and had to face the very real prospect of never having children which was utterly devastating especially when the consultant said that we would never conceive and that was pretty hardcore at the time and um so i um my husband, my now husband, who is also an ex-international rower and ocean rower too, um, and we had IVF and, and through that process I, I had um, PTSD, uh, which was really, really full on and probably the most um, horrendous mental illness that I've ever had to experience. So that was hardcore and um, Throughout that, I trained. I was I trained and, and, and found that a relief for me. Um, and so when we successfully conceived and um, I got pregnant, um, I went to my local gym and I was tossed out of my yoga class. <laughs> really? Like, oh yeah. Hold on a minute. Oh, hold on a minute. <laughs> like I'm a trained personal trainer. This does make no, this makes no sense whatsoever. And you know, and and um, so I kind of got a bit grumpy about that. And I could afford to get a PT, so I did. I got a PT. Um, and the statistics are that it takes up to three years for for most women to re-engage back into activity. 
after pregnancy and I, I was exactly that person. It took me three years to get back into it. My daughter's four now um, and it's, it's so easy to disengage just because of the demands of the physical demands of having a child as well as the um, actual demands of having a kid. You know, the childcare, the guilt, the accessibility, the expense, you know, everything like that. And, um, and I'm somebody who was an advocate for activity um, and I, I still found it tough. And I started thinking, oh my God, you know, we are actually, I kind of started pulling the timeline together and thinking, so we, dis, we, we disengage young women as teenagers from being active. Um, we don't in, um, uh, enable, empower and encourage them to stay active um, preconception. And then we actively discourage them from being active in pregnancy and post-pregnancy. So what we're doing is we are disabling, physically disabling women um, through passive, you know, all these passive actions, really. And, and it's, a, it's a fucking travesty because women are going through their adult lives incontinent with serious um, back issues, pain issues, um, and going on into their old age with all sorts of physical complaints, which are entirely unnecessary. And I, and I don't want to, you know, in my 50s, have a hysterectomy because I've got a prolapse. You know, you know that's, yeah, yeah. that's what it is, right? Um, I don't want to be incontinent, you know, and, and many women are facing these issues um, because we as a society are not supporting them to stay active and, and do what, you know, is necessary to enable them to be healthy and... And, and, and physically capable. And it's a travesty. Yep. Osteoporosis is a huge problem for women in their old age. And it's because we don't encourage them to do weight-bearing exercises um, and, you know, broken hips. And as soon as, you know, you can't squat anymore, you can't go to the toilet anymore. You know, yeah. and it's, it's, it's such a shame. And we are perpetuating that behavior because women aren't being aren't able to be role models for their young the young women in their lives for their daughters and, and young women around them, and it has to stop. It has to stop. Yeah, I, I don't really have a rant. That's like fair enough. Yeah, I agree with that. Rant over. Rant over. Well, no, it's, it's not a rant. I, I have two young daughters. Um, they they are both capable of conquering the world. Um, the world probably doesn't want them to do that, and I want them to grow up that to think that they can. I'm completely on board with everything you've just said. Yeah. And you see, and I see my four-year-old daughter, she's doing pull-ups, she's doing monkey bars, you know, she's running around, she wants to gym gymnastics. And I, it, would, it would rip the heart out of me if she got into her teenage years and felt that she couldn't, couldn't do that anymore. Mm. Society, societal norms, it would rip the heart out of me. Where do those societal norms come from? <sighs> Gosh, that's a... I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a really, oh gosh, it's so embedded. I mean, it, you know, you'd have to unpick <laughs> so much, you know, from, from our, our history, you know, from everything from um, the med the over-medicalization of, of pregnancy and labor um, as, you know, as soon as it became more of a, a hospital thing rather than midwife led um, um, 
kind of activity women kind of became fearful of giving birth i know it is a very frightening thing and we and absolutely need support but um you know so many women go into pregnancy afraid um women are young women specifically are afraid of going out in into a local park to train because they're worried about um violence and they should be you know and women are be you know being violated against all the time so you know women are are going into the world afraid to do things they're afraid to do things. i think it's every three days for actual death but a woman will be attacked every six minutes it's an it's a it's unfortunately it's an epidemic across all genders and sexes in the uk at the moment and this the safeguarding institutions that are in place are not robust enough or up to speed enough to to cope with it but it does impact women and young girls more because if you're raised fearful you're raised to think that the world is a scary place and let's be honest it can be you had the back of your your boat eaten off by a shark but the experience of having the back of your boat eaten off by a shark gave you a thicker bark and you did it anyway and that's the point isn't it surely that that yes it's a scary place but if you just stay in your house within the four walls of your house you'll spend the rest of your life terrified you won't live it you won't wring it dry you won't fulfill yourself yeah and then there's you know the the, the there's peer pressure there's um you know the pressure to be thin i know that's changing quite a lot now in, in terms of fitness but again these are these are exaggerated forms of both those things you know it's not it's not activity for activity's sake just you know but to kind of like just to stay fit and active it's about being super fit or super thin you know it's all at the extreme ends of everything you know and and i've always been an advocate of you know i want to lead a long and healthy life and that doesn't mean i have to be extremely fit i just need to be strong enough so that when i get into my old age i can i'm still capable and i can still care for myself um you know with as a little injury as possible <laughs> um yeah it, it's 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 ex- an extremely complex issue and, and one that's going to be very difficult to unpick hmm. hey. i think i mean i i think we've kind of like got through kind of what we had in mind to talk about i think what we sort of normally ask is kind of rowers who spent their entire life in rowing as a as a river sport as a coastal sport um and we say what is rowing doing right right now what is it doing wrong and how can it make things better but someone who has a slightly wider experience on this what do you think we are doing right in in Great Britain at the moment with regards to the things that you are championing? Where do you think, you know, we we, we have talked about quite a lot of sort of like actually quite dark things, I think, um, in the pod, but what, what are the good things? What are the things that are going well and that we should try and support more of? I 
can honestly say the lockdown, I think, has changed the way people think about activity. And I think that's a hugely positive thing. You're suddenly realising that you only haven't, you know, in the first lockdown, at least, you only had an hour to do something. So people started doing something. It's like once you realise you, you haven't got it anymore, <laughs> you value it more. Um, so I think that's a, that's a huge change in people's perspective. You know, the number of um, people out in the park who I kind of, you know, with my judgy head on would go, I wouldn't normally see you out. We're out and are out. And uh, the way we perceive our health as well because of COVID and, and how COVID tar targets uh, a you know, certain demographic of people has changed the way that we as a society, I think, are, are viewing our health and um, um, and and how to tackle it, and I think there are a huge number of organisations who are working towards kind of highlighting activity over exercise and sport, and saying be active. You don't have to be sporty. You don't have to be exercising. It's not about the gym if you don't want that, but if you do get stuck in, you know, and that's something that we talk about the Active Pregnancy Foundation is it's not about exercise and sport. It can be if you choose that for yourselves, but activity can be as simple as going for a walk. So, you know, that that's, I think is, is changing. Um, I'm seeing it changing. That kind of rhetoric is changing. And I think that's going to, will only get stronger now post, post ap uh, epidemic. I really do. I think people will be more focused on their overall health. Um, so that's a good thing. Um, conversely, what I think is needs to change, and I think actually this is something that's quite specific to rowing, is that it's still stuck in sport and not in activity. And therefore there's a barrier to participation. As an as a as an, a person who has wanted to join uh, rowing clubs, especially in London. It's a very close shop, still is, it still is. And for those who I know who've wanted to go and join and have, there's, there's so much kind of push to be in a team, to compete. And actually quite a lot of people just want to get in a boat and row up and down the river, you know, and push themselves a little bit, but they don't want to compete. And so they, they drop out, you know, and there should be facility for people who just want to row on the river you know and just give it a go and not have to be in a competitive team um Aaron do we know anyone who agrees with that yeah we we know a a, a blonde haired giant of a man with a chest like a cooper's barrel which has three olympic gold medals on them called Andy Triggs Hodge yeah yeah <laughs> really now <laughs> uh, yeah uh, well he 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 came on the podcast and said oh just call me Hodge and I went no I can't it's like god saying call me mate um he feels exactly the same that rowing has become a performance sport rather than a participation sport and even though he is you know, one of the world's finest oarsmen historically. He did it because he loved it and he had fun doing it. And he sees that a lot of that's been lost all the way down and all the way through. Yeah. And because it's it's all performance led and the performances usually funnel up into key events, we lost so much of just taking a boat out and ragging it up and down the river for fun. Yeah. You know? Which yeah. is the whole reason why we do it, because moving a boat is great. Yeah. You know? And there'll be, they'll, there, I'm sure there are enough people within the, you know, the sport, within the, the, the community who actually be very happy to go out, you know, in the launch and, and just support 
that sort of activity. Yeah. It's not the focus of the competitive, London specifically, competitive clubs. Agecroft was very competitive, um, you know, tying up in Newcastle. Is it? I mean, they're, they're great clubs and they, they, they do good work within the sport. Um, I think one of the things he's working on is trying to bring back more participation with the, uh, is it rather Thames, Lewin? Uh, it, I think it's Thames Tradesman. Um, so he, he's at Thames Tradesman. They've got this thing going on called the Revolution. Mm. Um, and I, I was literally just trying to find it on uh, Twitter now. But yeah, he, he's, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's this whole idea of just like doing something you, you can do it, you can, you know, do things competitively, but also just have a, just, just have a thrash, just like go up and down a river or just up a river for the fun of it in, under your own steam on a boat that needs a paddle, yeah. just whatever it is and just see how it goes and, you know, wear fancy dress if you feel like it, there's a, it's quite an interesting story about him wearing a, what was it, a... Was it a pirate? No, yeah, no, he was a snow, he was snow white, and there were eight women in the boat with him who were dressed as the dwarfs. Um, <laughs> well, that, that sounds really, really fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, and but again, you know, how many black kids do you see in a, in a rowing boat going up with a... How many disadvantaged kids do you see in a rainbow going in the river? You know, I work F with the Fulham Reach yes. and the League. Yes, yeah, so Fulham Reach actually hosts the um, the London Sports Trust, um, and um, who I'm a trustee for, and and the um, they 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 have local kids come, but that's two, mm. two two rowing clubs, right, in the whole of the UK, essentially. So, you know, just. They need to look at the demographic and look at the opportunities that they're giving to, to kids who wouldn't have access to it. I had never heard of rowing when I was at my school, and I, and I, you know, I was lucky enough to you know, get into private education. But I came from a council house upbringing. My mum and dad were in their teens when they had mom, um, us as kids, you know. I've never even heard of it. I mean, what? They, what people what, rowing a boat race? Oh my God, this is. <laughs> it makes no sense to me. You know, yeah. so, you know, how the how it's. it's You've got to open it up. You've got to yeah, open it yeah. up, and, and and only by doing that can you see true potential and 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 target those people who you never anticipate ever wanting to do it. And some of them will be great. I think that's a, I think that's a valid point. In this country, the way that the sport is presented, it is freighted with a lot of historical class. Yes. Bases, but if you actually go beyond the official narrative. There is, a, there is a long history of working class rowing that you never actually get to hear about. People like Harry Clasper and, and, and you know, uh, those kind of people who weren't allowed to compete at the Henleys and the, the showpiece regattas because they were seen as tradesmen. Yeah. And back then you had the whole gentleman amateur and trade thing. So, so yes, you know, if you, if, if you want to see, if you want Britain to be successful internationally in sports, which is what a lot of sport, sport is driven by now, you have to. The more opportunities you give to people that that don't come from the traditional backgrounds, the the more the bigger your talent pool is, and and be and if that's your only driver, that's fine. 
But by doing that, you also open these experiences up to people that will enrich their lives and open their lives up too, even if they don't win gold medals. And, and you know, just having the women's race and um, um, the um, the boat race, right? Role models, okay, role models. It, how Jesus, how long has it taken just to get the women to be able to participate in the same fucking race? I mean, God, it's like, hello, drag you up from the dark ages. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, no. I'm going to that battery really badly. I'm down to the last 7%. And I'm like, quick, quick. No, we've, we've, we've kept you a, a long time. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I, I'm sure that, that Loon will wrap up, as he always does, because he's more erudite than I, but can I just say, thanks for coming on. You have been massively inspiring. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Oh, I'm pleased. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. It's been fantastic. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm enormously jealous about the whole whales thing. I'm actually slightly jealous of like the shark eating your boat, to be honest. But yeah, it's been brilliant. Thank you very much indeed, Sally. It was great to actually finally meet you after hearing so much about you. Brilliant. Thanks. Take care. And that was Sally Kettle. And I think that was quite eye-opening. For me, that kind of, something that really struck home was, was talking about, you know, when she was injured on the yacht and there was just, there was no space in anyone's head for an injured person, for someone who wasn't completely focused on the goal of winning. I would say that at many times in my life, and particularly in rowing, I've been as guilty as that of that as anyone else. I think that it's something we should all be very aware of and try to moderate or maybe allow in ourselves, but allow in very, very brief bursts of time because I don't think it's always appropriate. It's a key point because let's be honest, we talk a lot on this podcast about training and rowing and competing and we've had wonderful guests on who've talked about the top end of the sport from coaching perspectives and also from the actual athlete perspective and how incredibly demanding it is and how focused you need to be and that's all valid and we would not take anything away from those people and and their achievements which which frankly inspired us to get into this wonderful sport as it is but here's the here's the thing most of you who are listening to us now are probably somewhat like us. You probably have jobs of some kind of professional description. You probably have reasonable incomes and nice homes and all of the rest of it. You're probably, you know, as if not more competitive than we were when we were rowing and Lewin still is. You probably followed the same path about if you want it, you have to work for it and you have to strive every single day. But when the final curtain comes and it all comes down, the amount of money that we made in our lives will not make much difference. The size of house that we lived in will make literally no difference. All of the things that we tend to put out as being achievements externally in such an externally driven world will not actually count for anything. They will not go into the grave with us. They will not be burnt alongside us in the cremation chamber. The only thing that will be left of us among the people that we knew are how we treated them and how we made them feel. And if we made them feel like shit, that's what they're going to remember. So saying that, as Sally did, that kindness is everything when you get down to it, it's so simple. 
but it's such a powerful concept. I think we can be too easy to forget that. I think people in life quite often can be too easy to forget that when they are driven by goals. I'm, I'm not going to condemn goals or condemn a degree of self selfishness. But I do think you need to be aware of your own selfishness. And I do think you need to be very much in touch with where that leads you and how often you display it. Yes, because when the end justifies the means, as we know through looking through history, when the end justifies the means, you start getting into some very dubious moral and ethical territory, um, I think. And I think what was key about Sally's stories about her adventuring, which is, which is frankly wonderful, and, and if, if I had any athletic ability left, I would be heading for the Atlantic to spot whales and for Loon to be eaten by a shark in short order. I'm sure his wife wouldn't miss him too much. What was interesting was she set these goals with the desire to change her life. It was a very definite, I'm going to change my life by doing this extreme thing. And she was very, very goal-led. And she was very honest about how disappointed she was that she didn't achieve those goals. Um, her first partner had an epileptic fit and, her, and then her mum ended up coming with her on her first trip. On her second trip across the Atlantic, she wanted to be um, the fastest and first women across and a crewmate got injured. She's very honest in saying that at the time, it really upset her that she didn't reach those goals and she didn't achieve what she set out to. But she then talked about being able to review the experiences in hindsight and realizing that actually it's not the goal, it's the challenges that you face on the way to the goal that you learn from in hindsight. And those things all turned out to be blessings because it led her to the place where she is now. And when you are goal-driven and goal-centric, for example, Lou, and I'm just going to throw this out, imagine you are an Olympic athlete and in a four-year cycle, you won every World Cup, you won every World Championship, but then you only got bronze at the Olympic Games. There are two ways to look at it. If, you're into, if you are goal-centric and the Olympic gold is all that you are looking for, that four-year cycle has been a failure. But in hindsight, you would surely look back and go, well, we won every World Cup, we won every World Championship, and we only got the bronze, but that provided the platform for what happened next. That reframes it as a success. I think so. And I, I also think, you know, when I look back, there are many things that I think in my own life that have not gone to plan, but they have led me to where I am now. And very much, you know, being a family man, being part of one of the greatest and best podcasts on the internet. Is this the other one? That this, is, this is the other podcast, yeah. Means that, you know, I have to look back on everything that I've done as bringing me to this point. And there is literally nothing I can say I would change because it might change what is now. I would also like to point out that if any BBC broadcasters are listening to this, and we know that you are, because when we said that no British rowing um, people listen to this, Mark Davis got in touch and said, I am, which instantly made us check and see if we'd said anything libelous about him. If any 
TV producers, production companies, BBC broadcasters are listening. We would like you to come on and just explain why there are no female adventuresses on TV in the same way that there are the James Cracknells of this world, the Michael Palins of this world, the pale, stale male figures of this world who get to trot off and discover the Himalayas and the Sahara and all of these things that have been discovered before. When you have people like Sally who would have done the job and shone a fresh, new and exciting light on these things. Well, I mean, it's, it's a well-known fact, Aaron. Um, her brain might have overheated. Having talked to Sally, I think there is very little that would ever overheat her brain. You say that, but, you know, it, it's why we kept women out of the marathon all those years. Their uteruses might fall out. And the uterus is everywhere. It's, it's, it's shocking. So, so when Dick Whittington said, I'm going to London to seek my fortune because the streets were paved with gold, if he'd done it after the London Marathon when they first let women in, he'd be saying, I'm going to London where the streets are paved with uteri. <laughs> Indeed. Um, because, uh, as you know, uh, women can't run marathons. It's a, it's a well-known fact. Yeah, my mum's um, 71 and she's run more marathons than I have and, and ever will. So that's that myth firmly exploded as well. Does she still have a uterus? I don't, I don't know. She said she found me outside Tesco's and, and, and you know, apparently I was there the, the next day when she went back. So she just took me home. So I, I couldn't possibly comment. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, but no, um, Sally Kettle, quite a remarkable lady and um, a very, very interesting podcast that we commend to this po- community of podcast listeners. Indeed. We may have reached peak podcast, but let's be honest, there's only one worth listening to. And that's Patricia Carswell's and also Rebecca Caro's. And then if you've done that, come and listen to us because we'll just talk rubbish about my vowel sounds at some point. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much and good night.